0: Well, welcome to the Lewis House Podcast. Uh, here on this episode, we have Dr. Peter Lightheart with us, who has recently given a lecture here at Lewis House. We're going to be covering some of the same ground, we'll probably get into some new stuff as well. So, Dr. Lightheart, welcome. Appreciate you coming. Thanks, Brian. Great to be here. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, for our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with you and your work, I want to just start off. Kind of tell us a little bit, a little bit about yourself, uh, a little bit of your background, what you do now, that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, I'm currently a president of the Theopolis Institute, which is a leadership training institute and a think tank in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, and I also serve as a teacher at uh, a, a Trinity Presbyterian church mm-hmm. in Birmingham. Um, I've, I've written uh, books of theology, biblical commentaries, mm-hmm. some books of literature. Um, got 10 kids, 15 mm-hmm. grandkids, um, a wedding coming up in about a week and a half. For one for one of, one of, of the
0: kids, yeah. one of the kids, another wedding. Yeah. Wow! Yeah. Well, congrats. Ten, 10 kids. You you really did uh, take the biblical. Command to be, uh, you know, be fruitful, and multiply. You took that very seriously. Yes. As as I was talking to you, you try to take all the all the Bible seriously. Yes, I do. But you seem to have done a really good job of <laughs> of, of, of this one. 10, ten kids <laughs> and fifteen grandkids. So, uh, well, that is that is great. Uh, we are honored to have you here. One of the things I appreciate about you, you mentioned being a teaching pastor as well. Still, and I know you've you've planted a church or two. Is yes. That, is that right? Yeah. I know you. The thing I appreciate about you is that you take, uh, you know, the life of the mind very. seriously but also not just in a um, dry disconnected way from life that there is a there 's always a concern i 'm sure probably always a thought in the back of your mind what is this what is this how does this get lived out what 's the lived experience of this how is this fleshed out in the church how does the spirit take take these thoughts and make them alive in in the, in the ways that he does through the churches in fact uh, you know I know we 've talked about this recently about being a pastoral theologian it sounds like you take that charge very mm-hmm. seriously that that to be a pastor is also to be and really, to be any Christian is also to entail, you know, to use our minds well. Would you agree with that?
1: Oh, sure. Yeah, and and I think the, there's a couple of different sources for that um, that kind of pastoral emphasis. One is that kind of providentially, I was trained and intending to be a theological teacher, mm-hmm. but then uh, life circumstances led me into the pastorate. So uh, that gave me a, a a pastoral experience that really shaped the way I do my mm-hmm. theology. Mm-hmm. And then also the, the colleagues that I've had over the years have been mainly pastors, uh, some uh, more academic theologians, but uh, one of our mantras has been all theology is pastoral theology. Mm. And mm-hmm. even when I'm writing something that is more technical theological work, I'm thinking that I'm doing this as a service to the church and the real, the real, in, the real fulfillment of what I'm doing as an academic happens when it uh, the Word of God is taught to the people of God mm-hmm. uh, by a minister that's that's really where the theology comes to life. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, well, you know, you've written about a wide range of things. I mean, uh, that's one of the things I appreciate about your work. I mean, you mentioned that earlier, the different, uh, whether it be, you know, history and, and writing about defending Constantine and uh, your work there, and then you've got, uh, you know, biblical commentaries, you've got stuff on film. I know you've got a book on Terrence Malick's film, The Tree of Life. So I really appreciate your your uh, willingness to say, let's bring uh, what we have, these scriptures that have been revealed to us, the, the theological reflection out of them to to bring that to a lot of different areas of life, to all areas of life, really. And, uh, you know, one of the questions that we've been thinking about here at Lewis House some is this, is this question of the role of science. And obviously uh, in our culture, uh, you know, well, really in all cultures, science, depending on what you mean by that, and, and the level of science there, uh, science plays a role in the in the shaping formation, how, how people live their daily lives. Uh, but but science now seems like it's taken on some different meanings, some different shapes than maybe it did historically. Uh, we kind of have. Maybe uh, science has taken on a little bit of a different role, you might say, in our culture than it did in other cultures. Uh, would you Would you agree that that's that's taking? Yeah, on? I think that's yeah. true. I
1: think we have to get. I think at another go to another deeper level before mm-hmm. you can see what's unique about our society, mm-hmm. and that is to recognize the shift in the understanding of what science is mm-hmm. uh, that happened. Uh, you know, in the 16th and 17th century with the rise of modern science. Uh, this is a a theme that's been developed by an Australian. A historian of science named Peter Harrison, in a number of books, and he's pointed out that there's there was a shift around the time of the scientific revolution in the understanding what science is. There were there were natural philosophers that so go back all the way to Aristotle, um, who are investigating. Aristotle's looking at the natural world. He's trying to classify living things. Uh, he's writing on the souls of animals, and he's uh, trying to think about. Uh, he's got, got a whole book called The Physics, which is about uh, motion and change and trying to explain motion and change. So it's not as if an uh, investigation of creation is new. Uh, what's new is a a certain uh, restriction of that investigation to just strictly material, natural forces. That's that's what's happening in the 16th to 17th century. Uh, and uh, then the elevation of that science, that restricted notion of science, to an, uh, a kind of Primary role is the arbiter of truth. Hmm. Um, I mean, you have, you have you have science going on prior to that in the ancient world through the medieval world, but it it doesn't it's not the same kind of thing that it is in the modern world, and it doesn't have the same stature that it has. Hmm. So a, a medieval uh, a medieval monk who's doing science is also doing theology. They're doing both at the same time, and they don't see those as at all incompatible. Hmm. Um, they're trying to investigate the creation and recon- while recognizing that the creation comes from a creator; those are those are just two sides of the same investigation, and it's the restriction of um, scientific investigation just to the natural world that's uh, that's unique, and and then um, the elevation of that that kind of uh, that kind of science to a, a leading role in in uh, determining what what counts as true in in human
0: society. Well, it, it seems to me there's a, a certain kind of arrogance maybe uh, and and i don't mean that in in a i don't mean to attack science i mean science uh, I, you i fully assume agree that is one of the ways in which god has given us he's given us our minds to be able to investigate uh, the world and to learn about it uh, but it seems to me there's a certain kind of arrogance to in in modern science that that only it can speak to matters of truth, mm-hmm. and and this becomes yeah. this becomes problematic. I think.
1: Yes, uh, I think that's right. I I referred last evening to an, uh, a, a recent article by the Roman Catholic philosopher D.C. Schindler, David C. Schindler, uh, where he talks about modern science actually beginning from what he calls a gesture of modesty. Mm-hmm. We're just going to we're just going to look at natural forces, uh, material forces. Uh, there may be metaphysical forces. God may be involved. In the world, we don't know. Uh, we're just going to we're just going to stay within our lane, and we're going to investigate this. But that gesture, of modesty, ends up being, as you say, it's uh, it's a kind of uh, self uh, elevation and self aggrandizement, because science becomes the arbiter of the natural world, and then as the understanding of nature begins to expand, uh, even human beings come under that uh, come under that uh, heading. Uh, human beings are the product of various kinds of natural forces. Um, even human consciousness, there are efforts to try to explain human consciousness within an evolutionary Darwinian framework, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, that's definitely a, a kind of hubris in, uh, uh, that's uh, involved there. Even though it's, or, it's in origin, it's some, it looks like the opposite, but it ends up being this uh, kind of an imperialistic um, mode of thinking.
0: How would you, you know, the term science and scientism. H- how would you distinguish between those two things? Again, we I think as Christians want to have an, a very appropriate and healthy respect and appreciation for science. I mean, I mean, all the different gifts that science has given us. Uh, we, we want to be appreciative of those, yeah. but yet scientism seems to go beyond that. How would you distinguish between science and scientism?
1: Well, science, modern science is deliberately set up to be provisional, uh, it's, um, it's contested. Uh, somebody proposes a theory, backs it up with experimental evidence, but then uh, there's always the possibility that somebody else will propose a different theory that explains things better, backing it up with different mm-hmm. and better kind of uh, experimental evidence. So um, science is designed to be provisional and designed to be contested and, and, uh, and debatable uh scientism uh, is is a dogmatic use of science, and mm-hmm. I think we saw this uh this uh, almost a parody of this kind of dogmatism during the recent pandemic where this uh the the uh, decrees were issued from public health authorities follow the science um anybody who was looking a little bit below the surface was aware that there were many many scientists who were mm-hmm. contesting yeah. uh the public health uh the the, the official line of public health. Uh, experts. There were other experts that were uh, coming to different conclusions.
0: Yeah, and um, there were moral claims in that as well. It wasn't correct. just follow the science as a, a suggestion. It was you should follow the science. Yes, right. Yeah, there was a moral dimension.
1: Exactly. So, yeah. so scientism is both dogmatic and it becomes moralistic. I think scientism is also the. It's different from science in that uh, science, properly speaking, investigation of the creation is open to truth that might be and might be arrived at otherwise. So. Mm-hmm. I think for Christians, uh, scientific investigation has to be open to input from revelation. Mm. Uh, it's, it's possible. We have to believe that it's possible that something in the Bible would have an effect on the way that we think about the natural world. Um, for scientism, science itself and the methods of science are the only way to arrive at truth. And again, you have this kind of limitation of science. It's not open to listen to other other methods of knowing, um, and that's that's when you get into uh, the kind of pride that you're talking about with scientism.
0: And this this isn't just a problem that strikes me for Christians and for you know how does theology engage with science? It seems to me that it's a problem for you know let's say philosophers. Uh, you know that, sure. that it it locks a lot of other disciplines out of the conversation of you know of how do we understand our world? Is that is that fair to say?
1: Oh, oh yeah, certainly. That it's uh, yeah it's not it's not just a, a problem for Christians. I agree with that. Uh, there, there are other kinds of there are other ways of uh, coming to uh, coming to know the world that are different different in method and different in mode than uh, laboratory science or in experimental science and. Uh, uh, a scientism will close off all of those avenues.
0: Yeah, it strikes me that the difficulty, and, and many people have pointed this out, of that in scientism, I mean, you have the scientific method that, you know, you, you come to things, uh, come to knowledge of things through empir- empirical verification. You know, you've got these tests that you do and experiments. But yet the scientific method itself is, is unverifiable <laughs> within, that, within that construct.
1: Yeah, that's right. It's uh, it can't. You, know, you can't. You can't justify the way science works on the basis of scientific methods. There mm-hmm. are there are other kinds of commitments that are at work there. And I think it's also important. This is a point I made in my lecture last night. Uh, science operates uh, and has authority because it claims to have access to the empirical world, the world as it actually is. Uh, much of scientific theorizing is dealing with things that we we can't actually empirically. Uh, 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 access. Well, need, what, what do
0: you have in mind? Well, you, you need, need
1: specialized yes. instruments to get at microscopic mm-hmm. uh, things. You need specialized instruments to get at. Uh, you get, get at um, uh, uh, deep space, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. Uh, those instruments are. Um, n- you need to know how to use them. They might malfunction. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have this. Uh, it's it, you have the the mediation of an instrument or some kind of machine between you and the world that you're investigating. Uh, which means that it's not just you're, uh, you're accessing the world, and there's this kind of obvious relationship between what you're seeing and uh, the scientific theory, or even something as simple as you know, gravity is a is a, is a construct. We don't mm-hmm. we see the effects of what we call gravity mm-hmm. when something falls, but we don't see gravity itself. That's a that's a that's a that's a hidden force. That's an, a, a non-empirical force mm-hmm. that is theorized in order to explain what we see happening. Uh, but uh, uh, again, the, a lot of science is moving from the apparent world into this kind of occult forces or hidden forces. I don't mean occult in the sense of magical, but these hidden forces that are not uh, not directly verifiable.
0: Yeah. So y- you have you know theoretical uh, work that goes into this. You you have interpretive work. I mean, you have this massive amounts of data and various things and you're trying to interpret this, which then also brings in that so much of science involves people, right? Right. I mean, these aren't just machines that are calculating whatever uh, and even, you know, even that would be problematic potentially, but uh, of, you know, the agents who set up the machines to to, uh, interpret the data. But uh, speak to a little bit the role of people even as scientists because scientists are people.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yes, obviously so. Um, well, I think that I think there is a there's a kind of discipline uh, that uh, conscientious scientists exercise and try to uh, restrain themselves from from bringing their own biases into mm-hmm. play in their interpretation of evidence or into their observation of an experimental result or whatever. That's there's a there's a kind of uh, uh, self restraint involved there that. Uh, I think many scientists actually actually try to practice. They can't eliminate their biases, they can't eliminate uh, the human element entirely. Uh, and as you say, uh, scientists have the same kind of uh, weaknesses, foibles, you know, um, scientists uh, uh, sometimes have lapses of attention, mm-hmm. scientists make mistakes, uh, scientists have bias, scientists have ambitions. Uh, if you uh, look at the uh, accounts of the discovery of the DNA, Molecule, for example, uh, Watson and Crick, and the mm-hmm. description of the ambitions that they had in order—they uh, wanted to unravel this mystery of uh, of uh, of living things before anybody else did. They wanted to get to that to get to that point first. So there's a there's a role mm-hmm. of ambition which affects the way you that you operate. Mm-hmm. So even the most conscientious scientist is having all these other forces, and that that uh, that doesn't uh, uh, that's not a, a a subversion of science. It doesn't mean science is mm-hmm. not effective and not an effective way to, uh, to investigate the world, but it does qualify how certain it can be
0: well, it strikes me that this is a particular problem. It's a it's a problem for science in general, and I didn't even to call it a problem, it's just a reality. Mm. I mean, it, to call it a problem, maybe to to put it in a in a negative light, but it's just a reality that that we need to to recognize. This is what goes on when people are doing science. It does strike me that this is uh, particularly the case for people who are in the so called social sciences. Mm. Would would that be would that be uh, true? I mean, and maybe you want to distinguish, as as others have, between you know maybe the hard sciences and social. sciences.
1: Yeah, I think there there, there are different uh, operating in different ways. I mean, you're uh, one of the one of the uh, clear differences that you're dealing with uh, in the social sciences. You're dealing with living human beings who have their own intentions, and you're trying to you're trying to investigate it in, in the aggregate. If you're a sociologist, you're trying to understand human behavior in an aggregate um, uh, and understand so- social trends, um, uh, which you can you can there are ways of uh, of finding reality truth there. Um, but um, I think that the, the, uh, the complication, the additional complication that comes with the social sciences is the human element that's not just on the part of the investigator, but now the object of your investigation is is also a human being who has his own ambitions and biases and so on.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the problems that strikes me for science in the, the contemporary university, because so much uh, scientific research is connected in our culture, at least in America, to these uh, educational institutions and all the dollars and grants and everything that they process and the equipment and scholars, is that there, there's a lack of... Um, there's a lack of, of, of voices from multiple angles I mean the, the contemporary university has tended to narrow some of its viewpoints on certain matters and so uh, you know you have people you know science works well when there's multiple people in the room discussing and arguing and mm-hmm. and pointing out like you said a lapse in judgment or a, you know or just a lapse of attention on something mm-hmm. uh, that they uh, they need multiple voices helping them but because of some of the for, for whatever reason the the contemporary university has been shown to not have some of the diversity of viewpoints mm-hmm. that that might actually help science be better
1: yeah uh, matthew crawford has has made the uh, observation he, he uses the the term cartel to describe how science uh, big science works hmm. uh, uh scientific scientific truth is uh managed by scientific cartels hmm. So you have um, huge amounts of money that go to research universities or to research, uh, to, to private research um, facilities. Um, they, those, those research facilities have to uh, persuade the granting agency, whether it's a government agency or something else, to give them that money. Um, they, uh, they have to um, manage the distribution, dissemination of the information they're giving. Crawford points out, for example, the way that, uh, the way that peer-reviewed journals operate. Uh, you, have, you have peer-reviewed journals, and getting an article in a peer-reviewed journal is a kind of stamp of approval. Uh, but the reviewers, the peers who are reviewing those journals, are also gatekeepers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, they have interests that they're trying to protect. And if an article comes to them that's too far out of the norm, or too far out of the, uh, out of the, uh, the normal science that they're operating in, uh, it, it gets rejected. It might be published somewhere else in a non-peer-reviewed forum, mm-hmm. But that means that it has less prestige, and mm. it's easier to dismiss it as a fringe, this is a fringe kind of scientist. He's never published anything in a peer-reviewed journal, or the reason he hasn't is because the peer-reviewed journals are controlled by this, these big-money cartels mm. who exclude uh, challenges and exclude the eccentrics who are theorizing otherwise. So the whole system is, uh, is set up so that, to minimize dissent in certain ways. And uh, yeah, that, that does lead to the, uh, a weakening of science, and it leads to other kinds of crises that um, uh, we it becomes a kind of echo chamber where you don't have the kind of checks and balances that science is supposed to have.
0: Yeah, there are a lot of other factors going into what gets classified as science and what is able to be shared with a, a wide range of people. Uh, with concerns that are far outside of just the little, you know, the guy in his lab or the woman in her lab doing her, you know, calculations, adding in her chemicals and watching the reactions and, and that sort of thing. There's a, there's a whole other, uh, there are a lot of other elements that go into modern science.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and that's, that's again, a point that Matthew Crawford makes is the, the, the disconnect between the image we have of science, uh, which goes back to, um, you know, I, think, I thought, think of Thomas Edison as a, an inventor, uh, a lone inventor in his uh, in his laboratory experimenting, hmm. you know, ninety nine percent perspiration, one one percent inspiration, trying to come up with an electric light bulb, hmm. um, and uh, that's the image that we have of science. And and a science uh, science has authority in our society because it uh, it it uh, kind of feeds on that image that people have. But that's just not the way that science operates these days, uh, because of the the scope of science. Then. The expense of the equipment that uh, that uh, big science uses, um, the the staffing of a big scientific lab, uh, laboratory, all of those things make it uh, make it a big business, and you get all kinds of other things operating. So you have this disconnect between the source of science's authority, which goes back to those uh, earlier images of what scientists were doing, uh, that over against the way science actually operates today.
0: Well, you know, Lewis House. Our what one of the things we feel like God has uh, uh, called us to do is just to encourage Christians to to think Christianly and to live faithfully. I mean, these two things are, are intertwined together. And so, as we as we think about science as Christians, uh, you know, how, how would you encourage Christians to just? Approach this topic. Approach the realm of how do we, how do Christians engage with the scientific community? Like, there's been so much, as you note, over the past couple of years uh, with the pandemic and and people you know, questioning science, some of which was very appropriate to, you know, to, to question, okay, um, you say this, but, but on the basis of what, and, and part of the difficulty was over the past couple of years with the pandemic is that people were forced to, uh, science, the scientific community was forced to move very quickly. Mm-hmm. And, and science, I think moves best when it moves more slowly and there's mm-hmm. times for conversation. And part of that was just out of necessity. They had to move quickly. Uh, but, uh, but a lot of people have raised a lot of, uh, of questions and, and people said, well, I, science, let's just throw it in the waste bin and let's, let's, you know. But that seems like an overreaction from some Christians to say we don't need science or the scientific community has nothing to offer us. Uh, and so, so what's, a, what's a healthy balance for Christians who, who we don't want to discard science, but we don't want to submit to scientism either? Where, where are Christians to think and live in here?
1: Yeah, I think it's it, that's a very difficult question. I think it's complicated. Well, by that's why it. I'm asking you yeah, yeah. to answer it <laughs> instead of me
0: trying to answer it. Yeah.
1: Uh, I think it's complicated by the fact that uh, most of us get our scientific information through various kinds of popular organs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't read scientific, technical scientific papers. Mm-hmm. I couldn't read most technical scientific papers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I read it as filtered through um, um, popularizers, mm-hmm. um, and then those popularizers... Are made available uh, through various, uh, you know, social media organs and so on, mm-hmm. which is complicated because you have you have this uh, wide variety of different opinions. That's just that's just uh, uh, restating the problem that you're addressing. A couple of things that I that I uh, uh, I'd want to say. One is the um, I think there's a there's definitely a role for uh, defending Christian truth over against scientific critique. Uh, the kind of apologetics that uh, many people have done over the years. Um, you know, the, the uh, 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 David Bentley Hart we talked about mm-hmm. yesterday mm-hmm. in his book Scientific De- uh, Atheistic Delusions, mm-hmm. uh, and the kind of um, uh, uh, the uh, um, unfounded uh, claims that uh, a figure like Richard Dawkins makes mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. the the the, uh, the power of science and mm-hmm. the and the and the and the ability of science to ar- uh, to be an arbiter of truth. So there's there's that element to it. The other thing I, I, I emphasized in my talk was the the positive role that Christian truth plays in our understanding of the world, uh, rather than just simply being defensive. I think we should try to think in terms of what what does our what does the Bible as God's word to us? What does the Bible teach us about the the actual operation of the world, how the world works? Mm-hmm. Again, we. Uh, we shouldn't assume that it doesn't tell us anything about mm-hmm. that. We shouldn't assume that it's just a religious book. Mm-hmm. It's a book about the world, and so it should give us insight into the, the nature of the world. Um, and uh, and Christian theology, more generally, gives us insight into the nature of the world. So I think uh, on those two fronts, uh, those are the two uh, two kind of fronts we have to fight on. The other thing that I uh, I, I did address last night a little bit in... Uh, in uh, uh, in answer to a question. I think what the the proliferation of uh, diverse opinion in social media, one of the things that that does is forces us back to local sources of authority, personal social, uh, sources of authority. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no way that most of us can arbitrate the different views of the pandemic, for example, independently. Mm-hmm. So uh, we trust the people that we know are trustworthy, that, and those are typically people that we know personally. Mm-hmm. Uh, they might be professors at a college or teachers at a school. They might be on certain issues. It might be your pastor. Um, somebody was telling me after the uh, after the uh, talk last night that the, uh, during the pandemic uh, their their um, family doctor said, if you have an article you 've come across an article about the pandemic, send it to me." I will read it. I will try to evaluate it, and I'll I'll get back to you and try to help you sort through what's true and what's not in this yeah. article. Uh, that's a great example of finding somebody that you trust because he's your personal physician uh, that can that can sort through these issues uh, and help you think through them when you can't when you don't have the. So I think we're we're thrown back on those kind of local sources, those mm. personal sources of authority, uh, which I think is where we should uh, where authority resides in general anyway. Mm. Uh, we should put much less stock in the in the uh, um, you know uh, the the loud voices on Twitter or even even the expert voices that come out of uh, the scientific community uh, and much more emphasis on the on the local, f- the local authorities that we're dealing with on a day-to-day basis.
0: Well, even though people who are listening to this may not be local uh, to, to this, I hope they uh, find some real wisdom in what you've shared today, and uh, that's one of the, the aims of Lewis House, is to try to bring helpful voices, people who can uh, help us think through various key matters, including questions that we've been wrestling with on science. So, Dr. Lighthart, thanks for being here. If they want to check out more of your work online, is there a good place uh, that they could go to?
1: Yeah, Institute is our website. And we also have an app. Uh, If you go to your app store and look up the Theopolis Institute, you can download an app and that's a good way to keep track of what we're doing.
0: Okay. Awesome. Dr. Lightheart, thank you so much. Thank you.